Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Sonal Katja is one of those people who can't see bad things happening without trying to make them better. She talks to Linda about leaving her job in the city to start a charity helping girls of the Mazai Mara. Philanthropist Sonal Katja is determined to change the lives of East African girls and young women, many of whom receive little education and are often destined to experience female genital mutilation and become wives and mothers at a very young age. Appalled at this situation, Sonal founded the charity Educating the Children, which went on to set up a secondary school for girls of the Maasai Mara in Kenya. Thank you very much for joining us on Women Making Waves today, Sono. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, tell us a little about your background. You graduated with a first in chemical engineering at Queen's College, Cambridge, I believe. Did you enjoy that student life? I loved Cambridge, actually. It was it was such an amazing experience, especially because I grew up in a immigrant Indian family and community in Hounslow. And it was very, very different to then going off to Cambridge and meeting people from all over the world and being around kind of like top class learning. It it was an amazing experience, I have to say. So it was a bit of breaking the mould going to Cambridge. And I, you know, I was the first person to go to university as well from, from my family, but I do, I'm really grateful for the, for them supporting me and being behind me. Yeah, I guess it must've been fear yeah. as well as pride. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So what did you do after you left university? So then I went off and I started working in the city. I was really adamant that I wanted to become financially independent. So at the time, it seemed like the city was the best place to be. So I started actually working on the trading floor in a very male-dominated environment. It, yeah, it was, it was very much work hard, play hard kind of mentality a bit a bit like Cambridge really yeah <laughs> but, but that is a very tough environment so to move on to what you've actually done you went on a mm. visit to the Maasai Mara it was with Richard Branson and Virgin Atlantic wasn't it because yeah you, I'm assuming that you were flying around a lot and you were you're a valued customer yeah exactly you got that got that right so it was um to celebrate their new route from london to nairobi at the time so they had invited some of their customers on this corporate social responsibility trip where we were raising money for the building of a new dormitory at a primary school in the Masomara in a community called Sekanani. And then we we went out there and spent some time helping to build the dormitories as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really good fun. And it was my first time in Africa, even though my mum was born in Africa, I hadn't been to Africa before that so it was a very special experience. So yeah. when you were on that visit you visited mm. some schools and what you found there you you were quite aghast about I think. Yeah yeah so I noticed that the classrooms were completely overcrowded there were 100 pupils in a class to one teacher wow. and at the time you know the Millennium Development Goals was aiming for universal primary education for all children and so in response to that the Kenyan government had made primary school free 
for children and that led to like an influx of children into like classrooms and, and you know I, I guess they didn't really think about adding more teachers at the time yeah <laughs> the girls in particular I think you, you noticed there was a problem they don't often go on to secondary education do they actually so you know initially I set up um, educating the children as a teacher scheme so whereby UK teachers could volunteer in the local primary schools in the Maasai Mara. And that was in response to seeing how overcrowded the classrooms were. And then one of our teachers, volunteer teachers, noticed that once these children finish primary school, there's no secondary school for them to move on to. So at the time, the region had 47 primary schools and no secondary schools. And so we decided, OK, let's build the first secondary school in the region. And then we worked quite closely with the community to figure out, okay, who should we target? How should it be built? How should it be operated? And the experience we'd built up showed us that actually girls were the most marginalized part of society. They were undergoing practices such as female genital mutilation, even though Kenya has banned FGM. It, it still happens in yeah. rural parts of the country. Hard to change uh, the mindset, I suppose. It, of tradition. Yeah, exactly. And then they go through early marriage as well. And then sometimes a lot of them even drop out of school to help their mother with 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 chores. And so female genital mutilation tends to happen in the transition between primary and, and secondary education. And when talking to parents, we discovered if there actually was the option of sending their daughters to secondary school, if there was a school in the region, they would send their daughter. Mm -hmm. So for us, it just made sense to focus on girls because, okay, you're, you're helping them in terms of um, giving them options which are different from going through FGM and getting married. Uh, so just it's just opening up choices in that way. No, completely, I completely get mm. that. They, they were the ones most most in need in some respects, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And then also, you know, there's a lot of international research that shows that if you educate girls, that is the biggest investment you can make for a community. So girls t tend to reinvest any income they earn back into their families, like 90% of their income versus like 30 to 40% for a male. I'll tell you what I think is interesting. You you worked mm. in banking at the time, I think, mm. and you were setting up a charity, the charity Education yeah. Children. That was in 2008. And setting up a charity, you know, it's no small thing when you're already doing what I assume would pretty much be a full-on job. How on earth did you manage that, Sonna? Yeah, I know. I, I have a tendency of doing this where I just go ahead and do things and then I'm like what, what I'm taking on this huge task so I, I usually take stuff on and then figure out what to do afterwards mm -hmm. luckily there was a real buy-in from the community and the community actually have helped to drive a lot of the stuff on the ground so I have to hand it to them as well it you know that's the only way I could have done it having such a hands-off approach from London is mm -hmm. to have that community involvement and like work shoulder to shoulder with the community and that's one of the pillars that ETC is based on it's not about us coming in there and like telling them what to do and then like doing it it was really about teamwork and they really wanted it and they were helping to drive it forward as well I think the um, objects that work though aren't they if exactly strangers parachute in with their fancy ideas 
and, and yeah. turn you set things up and then parachute out again. That's that's kind of doomed to fail. Yeah, exactly. And it's you know it's been a very organic process, and it's taken a long time to get this school up and running. It wasn't kind of overnight, but I think to be able to create something authentic and sustainable, it's the only way it could have really been done. Yeah, it kind of took on a life of its its own. How do the parents? feel about mm. the daughters going to what what is effectively I suppose a boarding school for many of them the parents live far yeah. away and they're, they're having to stay there is, is there kind of fear or suspicion about handing their daughters over like that no no I think because um, teachers and education is respected uh, all around Kenya and so there is a lot of pride um, in the parents that their daughters are going off to to school and it's a very safe environment um you know there's there's a matron that looks after them so i i wouldn't say that's that's an issue we have had to like for example convince some of their fathers this is a good idea and you you know you, you kind of have to speak to them in their language so okay you marry your daughter off and you'll get two cows but you let your daughter go to school and she gets a job and she'll be able to buy you two cows a month. And I think over time they're able to see, OK, this is having such a positive impact on their daughters and their families and their yeah. communities. So that's a great way of approaching it, actually. <laughs> yeah. So mm. you've been running a mm. Code Queen initiative. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So actually, so the last job I did in the corporate world was new business development in sub-Saharan Africa. And that took me to Uganda. So I spent quite a lot of time out there. And I noticed actually, Uganda's got this huge youth unemployment issue. And I was surprised because all the young people I came across were very talented. And I, I couldn't quite marry that up with this really high youth unemployment rate. And then I got talking to a guy who owns this startup village, the startup hub in Uganda. It's called the Innovation Village. And we we talked extensively about this gap in between university and work. So, you know, university courses are very theoretical. They're not really geared up to give young people work-based job skills, basically. And there's this gap that really needs filling through adequate training and so we'd reached a point where we'd handed back the school in the Masai Mara to the community so I was thinking about okay where do we take ETC next and this kind of came along and felt like it was the next logical step really especially when we're thinking about the future of education and work because our program Code Queen focuses on digital skills as well as other workplace skills. When it comes to the Code Queen, how are you funding that? Are you um, are you trying to raise money for it? Yes, Linda. So, I mean, we were lucky because our initial funding came from an organisation called The Funding Network, uh, who have been great. But that was for just the pilot stage. So now we're looking to fund for a full-scale project and um, it costs around £350 to take a student through Code Queen. For example, one of our graduates recently got a job 
for Tata in India and she's making double that as a monthly salary. So like in terms of your return on investment, it's pretty good. So we've got a fundraising page. So if anyone cares to donate, they can go to that page, which is like a Virgin Money giving page. I'll put that link on our website as well. So people can access COVID-19, the dreaded virus. What impact has that had on the work that you're doing out there in the school and and also in the training programme? So unfortunately, with this, with this, with the school, that was affected because you know it's like a phys- physical infrastructure. The girls were physically there, so because the the school was a it was a public private partnership, so we handed that back to the community, and it's run by the government. So it's a government school, and all government schools were closed down, and so the the school was closed down in March uh, 2020. Um, but it has reopened again, actually, a week or two ago, oh, which geez. is which is a relief because you know teenage pregnancy rates have like shot up in Narok which is the county where where the where the school is and I'm sure FGM rates have have gone higher as well and but I mean the girls are back in school now so that's that's a relief really and with the training program luckily because this is all based on digital skills but we were conducting our programs at the startup hub called the Innovation Village in Uganda. So we've had to migrate all our teaching online. At the moment, it's um, currently done 100% remotely. But unfortunately, that has meant we haven't been able to cater to everyone. So we've only, we're only able to offer the course to young women who've got laptops and who've got access to data or Wi-Fi. So because COVID happened in between us running a cohort, we did see a 50% drop off. And this new cohort that we're running, we've we've had to kind of say you need a laptop and access to Wi-Fi as a prerequisite of joining the course. And unfortunately, we're not in a position where we can do otherwise. But the plan would be that once once the pandemic settles down and the restrictions are over, we're then able to use the Innovation Village again so that we're able to also serve girls who 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 might not necessarily have access to laptops and Wi-Fi. Do you think that the young Maasai women who they're helping today, mm. do you think that that will initiate a huge change in the next generation and how they behave? Yeah, yeah, definitely. For example, when you meet these young women, they are full of so much ambition. Some of them want to be neurosurgeons, doctors, lawyers. They've got huge ambitions and they're really talented. So we had our first graduation in April 2019 and we've had like a 100% transition onto higher education. So I have no doubt that these young women are going to go off, they're going to study, they're going to have great careers uh, and they're going to come back and share their wisdom and their wealth with their community and help to drive that forward. That's amazing, um, actually, 100% yeah. going on to further education. That really is amazing. Yeah, the school's done really well. They've also, you know, they've won a couple of awards at county level as well. I kind um, of wonder if these women are spending a lot of their spare time studying rather than facebooking and doing the things yeah yeah exactly so in a way sometimes having limited access to technology could potentially be a blessing as well right i think past generations have sort of proved that as well to some extent yeah it's, it's a curse and a blessing really isn't it yeah that's true that's true 
Definitely. Now, I can't imagine that you've got much spare time. <laughs> but oh, yeah. Usually ask what hobbies have you got? Actually, I've started a master's. Um... Of course you have. <laughs> what are you doing that in? It's a master's in psychosynthesis psychology. I don't know if you've if you've heard of it before. No, I haven't. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's known as the psychology of hope. And the thing that fascinates me is like human motivation, what motivates different human beings to do different things. And what I love about psychosynthesis psychology is that it doesn't just look at, um, I, I guess it's called lower consciousness, as in oh, what's wrong with this person? What, where do they need to develop in their personality? But it also looks at the, the human being's potential as well, like in terms of what motivates a person to think just about themselves and to move to a place where they're okay then they're thinking about their family their community humanity so it's looking at all these different aspects of uh, of humans and humanity and how we can like move to a place where people care about things beyond themselves so yeah i i, I just find it very fascinating. It's very fascinating. I, yeah. I, I read somewhere though that you're quite keen on being a yogi. Oh. <laughs> is, that, is that kind of linked? It sounds very linked. To that. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think yeah, because I, I have to say, I, I love yoga and spirituality, and psychosynthesis psychology is related to that. And you know, yoga actually means union, and it's about kind of union with something bigger than yourself. Uh, and I think that's what it's about and that's been my motivation behind this charity as well almost because I, I don't know I guess when I um, from a young age it's, it's been maybe it's been like a subconscious thing but if I'd chosen the normal path of getting married at a young age it gets harder to make an impact beyond just the immediate few people around you. Whereas I've kind of, I guess I've gone off on this other path where, where thanks to education, my education, I've been able to make an impact to many more people. And I sometimes I wonder, okay, what is, what is all that about? And I do feel like it's all somehow linked and I'm trying to connect the dots, if that makes sense. I noticed that one of the, the quotes that, that you, that you made um, that I found is it's only when you're out of your comfort zone that you get to know yourself as a person. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's that's very much what underpins what you do as well. And sometimes it is uncomfortable, isn't it? Definitely. It's definitely uncomfortable. And you have to be comfortable with the unknown. And I think the the biggest decision I made was was leaving my last job so that I could focus on getting Code Queen up and running. So that was that was quite scary. But like I said, it's only when you're out of your comfort zone, you're really going to grow as a person. So it's been a learning experience. she's doing out in Kenya is absolutely fascinating. Of course, it's talked about quite a lot, the female genital mutilation, awful, awful situation that a lot of these young girls find themselves in being married off. You know, and I thought it was fascinating when you talked about 
it's how you approach the family, you know, in response to my, my question. Did they like the idea of their, of their daughters going off to school? And when she explained how she persuaded the fathers by equating that marrying a daughter off, you might get two cows, whereas if a daughter is working, she'll be bringing in lots more. And I felt that's, that, that's a very clever way of getting people to agree to that, to the benefit of the daughter. Yeah. Absolutely, it was a very interesting part to it. I agree with you. I really particularly enjoyed the Masai Mara, her her experience there. I've read so many books about the Masai Mara and, and I've just found it a really, really fascinating and quite sort of a, not a dark place, Linda, but it, it's still... It's still a place where people find it hard to get to and hard to to get to know that you know what goes on there. Mm. I think the interesting thing about these people is that it's it's almost timeless. Mm. You know, I can imagine that they live in much the same way as they were living a hundred years ago, two hundred, three hundred years ago. I don't think things will have changed very much That's right. for many of those families. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was fascinating was that she gave up a really good career in banking, and that must be a pretty well-paid job, to do what she's doing, which is probably not, in all fairness, a very well-paid job. And that says something as well about the woman. She, mm. She's a very measured person, isn't she? She is, actually. She is. She's great. Mm. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio.